0: Welcome to Hawaii Stories. I'm Grant Walters, and I'm your host for this episode. My guest is Rebecca O'Hare, who is the Assistant Director of Residence Life and Accommodation and Facilities Directorate at the University of Leeds. She is also the 2021 Hawaii Global Initiatives Network Chair. Rebecca recently completed her master's thesis at Anglia Ruskin University, in which she explored induction and training practices of student accommodation managers in the United Kingdom. During our conversation, Rebecca shares her perspective on how the role of campus housing programs and professionals in the UK have recently evolved and how she hopes they will grow in the coming months and years. Since last February, Rebecca has also been the co-host of our own student services focused podcast, Free Food, Free Drinks. She's a delightful individual and her enthusiasm for the field is absolutely contagious. Here is Rebecca's story. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule. Today, I, I know we're talking about your your dissertation um, that, that you recently finished. Uh, so congratulations, first of all.
1: Thank you very much. And it's great to be here. Thank you for the invite. I am getting involved with anything to do with a QOI is always a pleasure.
0: Wonderful. Well, we're so happy to have you. And, and congrats on your, your fairly recent appointment at the University of Leeds. And so I know you've made a move and, and I'm hoping that's going well.
1: Yes, it's going really well. So I've just finished my seventh week and I'm officially on my Christmas holidays. And it's been a whirlwind, a really good whirlwind, but it's been fantastic to be back in a university-facing position. Half my career has been based in universities and half has been in private student housing. Um, and it's just lovely to be back in a university, to be on a campus. And even though there's not many students around, uh, there's still quite a nice buzz about the place. And it's great to interact with different departments and sure. really, really enjoying it. Very good move.
0: Good, good. So what does your role entail currently on, on, on campus? Uh, what, what, what is your chief sort of responsibility day to day?
1: So my official title is Assistant Director of Residence Life and the Accommodation Office. So at the University of Leeds, we manage and own over 9,000 beds and the university itself has 38,000 students. So it's one of the largest accommodation portfolios in the UK. And we also work in partnership with a number of private student accommodation providers, and some are, of which are very well known in the UK. So I guess there's two strands to my role. You've got Res Life, uh, which is up and coming in Leeds and has been for a number of years. That's quite a big portfolio in itself. We've got a Res Life manager. He's got a couple of staff beneath him, and we've got about 70 resident assistants who mm. uh, live and work in our accommodation. And then I oversee the accommodation office, which is a very, very busy office. You can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, you can imagine the amount of applications and queries coming in. And we, you know, we work with a range of different groups of students and international students in the international office. So, you know, it is true when you work in student affairs type positions that no two days are the same. And that is definitely the case in this role as well.
0: Perfect. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, so, I, I know many of our uh, members probably uh, may not know a lot about what residence life and housing looks like in the UK, um, and so I, I, I know this is painting with a very broad brush. Uh, but you know, for folks who may not know a little bit about what the what the lay of the land is, what how would you describe it in sort of you know s- summative terms anyway?
1: Well, that's a great question. And, you know, sometimes I think about this and I think, God, there's a PhD in this for somebody because (laughs) residence life in the UK has been evolving for a number of years. It's nowhere near as established as it is in North America. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you guys, I look to what you guys do in North America and go, and go God, I wish we were doing this over here, but we're just not there yet. Yeah. So there are a number of universities that are kind of leading the way in residence life. So universities, Edinburgh, Sheffield, Essex. I'm going to add leads onto that because I'm leading that now. So we're <laughs> as you should. <laughs> and also, we've got a lot of universities right now who are kind of. You know, they're only running Res Life programs about four or five years, or they're thinking about doing it. And, you know, they're picking up the phone to people at the universities and saying, What does Res Life look like in your university? Where do you start? What do you do? How many RAs do you have? Do your RAs live in? Do you pay them? Do you not pay them? Are they volunteers? You know, we're still kind of figuring out over here in the UK. And, you know, some of the North American listeners might be a bit like, Really? That's like shocking because, you know, when you go to university in North America, a lot of students will you know, arrive into their dorms and they will know to expect that they will meet an RA. That isn't the same always for UK students, unless they've had brothers and sisters or family members or friends who've gone before them to say, there's this res life program in the university and this is what it is and this is what it looks like. So yeah, it's very up and coming, I'd say in the last 10, 15, maybe 20 years, depending on the university. And like I said, still a lot of universities that don't have those programs in place. In private student accommodations, so Mm -hmm. we call it PBSA, so Purpose built Student Accommodation, um, it's referred to as P3 Partnerships in North America, you have some operators now starting to kind of like dip into res life or they might call it student experience. For the most part, it's the fun side of things. So it's the events, the activities, building that sense of community. The welfare stuff is is normally seen as separate um, and is run by the kind of property sites day to day. And the pastoral side is probably a little bit different as well. So you've got kind of two two things going on. You've got the traditional res life model in universities Mm -hmm. and then something that's new and evolving in the private student housing sector as well.
0: That's good. Well, just to to piggyback off of that, I know you've worked in both realms. And so uh, thinking about, you know, the, the PBSAs who are dipping their toes into, you know, student support and advocacy and, and assistance. Where do you think they're getting their guidance from? I mean, nor, ones that are connected to universities are obviously accessing, you know, health professionals on campus and uh, medical programs and, you know, all the things that come part and parcel with, you know, what a campus operation has. Uh, what about folks who are working in private housing? How are, how are you seeing them access some of those services that are necessary to help students?
1: Well, a lot of the private partners or the private student housing operators in the UK, a lot of them will be in partnership with universities and a lot of them are in the Mm -hmm. big cities around the UK. So they'll be in partnership with quite big universities. And so they will have this agenda of putting student experience at the heart of what they're doing because it's important to the university partner. Mm -hmm. So they will often work in collaboration with them or they will develop their own response to student welfare. And that lies I guess it's aligned with their own values and um, where they see themselves as an organisation. So a really good example would be Unite Students. They're the largest operator private student accommodation in the UK. They have about seventy five thousand beds, um, which is huge. It's like you know a university and a half in itself over here. So they have a whole kind of welfare set up and it's based, I guess, around risk more than anything else. What's the risk to the student, the risk to the business, the risk to the brand. Um, And because they work with a lot of very well-known, very, I guess, um, highly ranked universities in the UK, you know, this is a huge part of their own values, their work that they do and placing students first. Then you have um, some smaller operators that might only have anything around 1 to 2,000 beds that may not offer anything at all you simply rent a room you pay your rental fees and that's it and so there isn't sure. anything extra around that or anything what they would say is fluffy around that and i always just like when we call res life stuff because it really isn't it's so much more than that you and i know that Absolutely. and then you've got a whole host of operators in the middle who do a range of everything and not so much at all so we're all just kind of you know trying to test things out but what's I guess driven it more and more the last couple of years is the student mental health agenda and the rise in students presenting in having um, a range of student mental health issues. Um, And unfortunately, student suicide as well has been on the rise in the UK too. So there's been an awful lot of conversation and dialogue and conferences about this in the UK and how best we can support students better. And there's also, you know, rightly so, a lot of conversation about transition to university. It's finally gotten the spotlight over here in the last while. And I know, you know, back in, in your part of the world, you have been doing research in this for years and years, and we have done a bit of research over here, but it's just, you know, it's, it's not as evolved as it is, but it's changing. Right. The conversation is changing, which is a good thing. So you see now what's happening are the private sector and universities coming together to talk about how we can share best practice, how we can work together to support students, regardless of where they live and who they live with.
0: One of the figures that I was reading in your dissertation, um, it was something that over the last 20 years, there's been a 59.4% increase in the number of students who are stu- choosing to study full time. And so in your opinion, what's been behind that increase and what, what's driving that?
1: Well, in the UK, there's been this um, drive by the government for the last 20, 30 years. It goes back to the Tony Blair government of getting 50% of young people uh, to go to university. And they've only just reached that figure this year. And also there's been a widening participation agenda, which has been a huge focus for those universities and for current and previous governments whereby you know as many people as possible have the opportunity to go to university who want to go to university. So you have more students now coming from single parent homes and um, you know, students who are care experienced, students with race disabilities, and universities and student accommodation are responding to that. So those increasing numbers means more beds are getting built as well. and that's resulted in purpose-built student accommodation just literally like the numbers have been you know going through the roof. We've forecast to have 700,000 beds this year alone, another like 30-odd thousand will get built next year. And even though COVID has been here and probably will be here, unfortunately, for a little while longer, within the sector and amongst investors, um, they're saying that essentially COVID is just a blip. It's still a really good investment. You know, student accommodation is a sure thing. And if you go to the big cities around the UK, Manchester where I live, there's just non-stop um, building going on. There's lots of cranes. At one stage last year, there was about 80 cranes on the skyline. And that's mostly student accommodations getting built on the Oxford corridor where the University of Manchester is and MMU is. And mm-hmm. if you go to Bristol, if you go to London, big cities around the UK, a lot of student accommodation getting built in response to that. And because of this agenda of get young people to university.
0: That's so interesting to hear.
1: And it's also, you know, it, as it's seen as a desirable destination. You have a lot of international students who come over here, you know, particularly from the Chinese market. And, um, you know, a UK education seems very desirable. And so you have a lot of international students who choose UK universities for their education, too.
0: Well, international students, you know, certainly been a significant topic for North American universities as well. Well, more so for American universities now, uh, you know, given, you know, the impact of our political environment of, you um, the pandemic, certainly. And so what do you think uh, UK universities have been learning about international students? um, And and what do you think they're doing to to continue to attract them and to to be good environments for them?
1: I think they've been doing quite a bit to learn about international students. I mean, they've been the bread and butter of a lot of universities Mm -hmm. um, and their income for quite a number of years now. The pandemic has actually shown a really interesting line because it's actually shown the reliance that some universities have had on that international market, some more so than others. Um, and there was certainly an awful lot of um, commentary about that over the pandemic about you know a range of articles coming out and saying that X university relies on this for this amount of income, as you know, maybe 50% of their overall income, where some might rely on it for only 10% of their income. In terms of, you know, learning about international students in particular, obviously China's a massive market and, um, you know, the international student is extremely important to all universities and a huge amount of work is done to welcome them, to welcome them to British culture, to make sure they're settled in. We have dedicated international offices. You know, we would hire international uh, RAs as well to make sure they feel settled in, as well as having a range of international staff. The great thing about working in a British university is that it's highly diverse. You've got people from all over the world who choose to, you know, work there, study there. And that's one of of the things I really love about living over here is that I've met so many people from so many different parts of the world that I mightn't have done so had I stayed in a smaller university in Ireland. Um, But it's a a huge part of the university experience here of, you know, I guess, attracting international students, living with international students and ensuring that everything we do isn't just focused on the home British student, but actually we take into consideration that a diversity of the student group and the diversity of, of students living in student accommodation. And that's reflected through the residence life programs that we do. It's reflected through the training that we gave our staff. It's reflective in our hiring processes as well.
0: So, thinking a little bit about, I, I reading through your dissertation, I, I know your primary focus was to um, sort of document and, and analyze the experiences, I believe, of ten uh, professionals who worked in in uh, who are working in the field. What were some of the key themes that you found that that those individuals had in common? Uh, that you know, if you if you laid them all out, and knowing that their experiences obviously are going to be very different in and in, in different environments, but what were some of the key things that you found were were common among them?
1: Yeah. So I guess when I started my uh, postgrad in student affairs and higher education, um, I was working in purposeful student accommodation. And I thought that when I came to the point of writing my dissertation two years later, that I would definitely do it in res life because that's what I love and that's what I'm known for. And I would definitely do it in res life. But actually, the more I realised with the more research I did, I thought, well, you know, Res Life is only as good as the people on the ground who are delivering it. And so I started to look at how we recruit and induct professionals in purposeful student accommodation because it is different in comparison to universities. And we over rely on the hospitality sector. So everybody I'd interviewed um, had all worked in hospitality previously. And I, I guess when you're working in private student accommodation and you're someone who's recruiting I, you know, one of your thoughts is, well, their main duties are they have to manage a building, their compliance obligations, they have to collect rental fees, they have to ensure the rooms are clean, deliver complaints. You know, if you're going to hire somebody who works in the hospitality background, they're going to tick all those boxes. But the thing that we neglect the most and it's probably one of our biggest problems over here. And I think it's very, very, very slowly going to get addressed is actually the holistic requirement of the role and the mm-hmm. student facing issues. And it's talked about a lot, like I spoke earlier around student mental health, but actually there's, there's very little, if any... Uh, sufficient induction or training done so the the students and um, students of distance that I spoke to had experience working for 11 operators in the UK and there was five key themes that came through there was now to be honest with you there was probably about 20 themes that came through but for the purpose <laughs> of word counts
0: right. <laughs> um, I, I
1: wrote about five so student mental health but not also student mental health but the impact of student mental health on staff of course. so staff right. mental health um, came through as well I also wrote about conflict management and threat and behavior. So how they deal with students who may be threatened to them or who may be threatening each other and dealing with conflicts and resolution that really well. Uh, Cultural awareness was huge. So, you know, I just spoke about how international students is a huge market in the UK for universities but also international students is a huge market for some particular private operators Mm -hmm. because they build really high-end, really luxurious student accommodation with like bowling alleys and swimming pools and gyms. Like it's amazing to look at, but it's also highly expensive. And there's only a typical student who can afford that. And that's the wealthy student. And a lot of wealthy students are coming from China and the Middle East. So those operators are actually actively working to attract those students. And what was interesting to me was I made the assumption that if I was working in that, opera, in that operation or if I was running that or if I was a senior decision maker in that, I would make sure that staff would have training on cultural awareness. And so if I knew I, I was managing a building that had a high Chinese demographic, well, I'd learn all about that culture and I'd learn about the importance of Chinese New Year and make sure my staff knew about that. But actually the staff that I worked for didn't know any of that. They learned mm. by a mistake. They learned by doing. <laughs> they actually learned by offending people and oh then my, students wow. come back and saying. You know, we appreciate the effort, but actually when you do this this way, that actually is bad luck for us. Um, you know, we'd rather you didn't do that, but here's how you can make it better. And so they had no set training around that. So cultural awareness came through time and time again. The other two was critical incident management. So what to do when a serious incident okay. happened. Yeah. And unfortunately, there was um, a number of times when they spoke about serious incidents like domestic violence or sexual assault and there wasn't any clear procedures in place about how to escalate that properly, when to involve the police, how to involve the police, how to handle the students, you know, before, during and afterwards. And then the final one interesting was university partnerships. So university partnerships is huge in the UK, like I said, PBSA is building more and more beds, everybody wants to be in partnership with a good university because it's guaranteed income, guaranteed students filling the rooms. Um, but actually there was A piece of, I guess, area that came up that said um, if you haven't got a university partnership in place. So you could be a a private operator and you might have a thousand beds, and you might have a thousand students in there. And those students could go to a, a number of universities. So if you're in Manchester, for example, they could be students from two different universities. And if you have no partnership in place with a university, you have no one to contact to say, I've got an issue with a student here who's got a serious mental health case. Um, mm-hmm. Can I refer them to you? All you can do as a member of staff is actually signpost effectively, and maybe you've got someone in your team who is, you know, can, has, is trained in counselling or trained in mental health first aid, or maybe you don't, which is the the case in most of these instances. So actually, there was this kind of question that kept coming up for me, which was, if you are a student living. In private student accommodation, and you know that accommodation, or you don't know it has it hasn't got a good relationship with the university. Are you worse or better off? Mm-hmm. Or if you if you live in private student accommodation and they have got a relationship place, are you better off than the student who lives in private and student accommodation and hasn't got a relationship in place? So it kind of raised more questions for me and more future potential research that I would love to do down the line.
0: <laughs> uh, hope maybe a PhD.
1: Hmm. Yeah. I might mm. be looking into that. Ground. Never say oh, never. <laughs>
0: okay. All right. That's good. Uh, I think we could use that. That would be wonderful research. Um, uh, what were some surprises that you? So obviously you identified some of those common themes. But what were surprises that you know sort of revealed themselves as you talked to those individuals?
1: I think the cultural awareness one surprised me the most mm-hmm. because I honestly thought, particularly with the you know with specific operators who we know in the UK. You know, go out there to attract the kind of wealthy students, the student that where money just isn't an object for them. That really surprised me. And actually, mm. one of the lovely things that I saw was that I saw a lot of, um, because all the people I interviewed were property managers. That was kind of part of the criteria. You had to have, be managing a building for at least one academic year. So they were either a property manager or a deputy property manager, but most of them had like three or four years' experience. They were very experienced. I saw an awful lot of them off their own back, take a lot of initiative to implement things that were for the student, that would benefit the student. So with regards to cultural awareness, one person decided because she'd been working with a particular company for four or five years, she wrote a booklet about, you know, uh, Chinese culture and do's and don'ts and things that are important to them and food is important and why having a rice cooker is really important Uh in their culture because in the UK, we actually ban these all the time from student accommodation and then we wonder why Uh, students actually get upset about it and in her words in one of her buildings when they removed them it caused in her words a riot because (laughs) they didn't know they didn't realize but it was very much a case of like when you know better you do better and so she took it upon herself to write this booklet for her staff and then whenever a new staff member started regardless if it was in her building or not she made sure they got that so it meant that future students from that particular background or demographic weren't offended or felt more welcome. So that was really really lovely to see that and it wasn't anything that she was asked to do, it wasn't anything that she got paid extra to do, she did it off her own back. And so I kind of knew that this would come through but actually it it probably surprised me more so was how much they really cared for the students that they housed, Mm -hmm. the lengths that they would go to to make sure they had everything. With regard to student mental health we did have a lot of um, I guess boundary issues where, because of a lack of training around uh, student, um, I guess, or student mental training, they were, I guess, you know, they would put themselves in situations whereby they would be on their own with a student who potentially was feeling suicidal. They were worrying about them when they went home in the evening and taking that work home. They hadn't got access themselves as staff to counsel that they need, They might need. Mm-hmm. So, so staff mental health then became an issue within that. And for some people, it actually caused them to want to leave the sector altogether because they felt that actually the reason why they hadn't got uh, training in the first place to deal with student mental health and to give good advice was because it was a cost factor, and that actually at the at the end of the day, what really mattered was the bottom line and what the investors got out of it, rather than what the staff needed and the service they could provide to the students. So that was a surprising element, but given that I worked in PBSA for five six years, I kind of wasn't surprised either.
0: <laughs> right. Right, well, and and mental health of staff, I I think is is an urgent uh, theme that we're contending with here in the United States. Um, And and certainly the impact of not just the pandemic, but also the significant amount of uh, instances of racial injustice and violence that have happened, um, over the past several months and, and perpetually that that's happened. That's been a part of our history, obviously, uh, economic factors, you know, our staff are, are absolutely burnt out. They're, they're frightened. They're worried. Um, and, and we've been hearing a lot of those stories, um, over the past, you know, eight or nine months, especially. So what are some of the remedies that UK institutions are exploring to help staff go through that. Here we have employee assistance programs and you know private counseling and things like that as well. Um, that that you know universities will support. But are, are there other ways that UK professionals are receiving that support?
1: I'd say it's probably similar to what you're adopting and seeing in your part of the world as well. You know, there's been a bit of a wellness revolution in the last couple of years, and mm-hmm. yes, employee assistant programs and yoga in the office and laughter yoga and things like that. But actually, what a lot of people are talking about is also burnout. And yeah. it's been talked about probably more so this year than anything. And the lengths of what people are going to. I've mentioned I only joined the University of Leeds seven weeks ago. It's been like a fantastic whirlwind for me. But at the same time, I've looked at my colleagues and the amount of decisions they have had to make in a, in a day. And a lot of that has come straight because the decisions that have been made by the government. And I thought, how have they been doing this since March? How have they kept going? And yes, people have taken leave when they can. Yes, people have had breaks and whatnot. But the amount of indecision that's happening at a really senior government level and how that's impacting on you know senior people in universities and how that trickles down is monumental mm-hmm. you can't even begin to explain how um difficult it is and how it's made me wonder how people have actually coped as well as they have and i think they've been absolutely fantastic i think what's important is that right now is getting you know adequate annual leave trying to leave the office on time sharing the load um, you know, asking for support when you needed all those basic things that people are still doing. That so, you know, we can have all the you know employee system programs and the wellness uh, classes galore and whatnot. But actually, if they don't feel supported to so able to ask those basic needs, I think that's when we potentially have a bigger problem and it leads to uh, burnout in mm-hmm. cases like that. But I'm quite lucky. The team that I work in is one that communicates really well, that talks yeah. a lot, and asks people how they're doing. And um, I see how that trickles down right throughout the university. So I think that approach for me anyway, is something that needs to be replicated if it, if it isn't being replicated in other universities or other institutions abroad, um, as opposed to assuming that people know what to do or people, you know, are feeling okay. And we have to keep asking people, you know, how are you doing? or Like, how are you doing really? You know, it's okay to talk about that and be honest actually about what you found overwhelming in that day. And, you know, it, we, we've had a, a shift of like you have as well as a combination of go straight home, work from home and, want, and and how that is and how difficult that is, even from a tech yes. point of view to now, you know, going back into the office to now having a hybrid model. And, you know, people, not everybody loves that way of working. I found working from home solely extremely difficult, mm-hmm. but then I like the hybrid model, you know, so that works for me, but equally I've seen staff members really struggle with, with both or want to be solely at home. And you have to just be so open to, understanding that change works differently for people and you know to to i guess be open to having those conversations with them and being flexible i think flexibility is the biggest thing as well and we are seeing a lot of that over here and you know i travel into leeds by a train four days a week and they're empty they're completely empty which is great because it makes for a nice travel experience but also it means it's showing employers are being more flexible with working arrangements which is fantastic and i think that's the way forward for for us over here
0: We often talk about differences between, you know, programs, and you've highlighted some of the ways in which, you know, especially American programs are different than the UK. But I think there are also cultural factors. And I I think that although we have a lot of things that are common, there, there are certainly cultural differences that sort of separate that. So without trying to be too general and too stereotypical, are there cultural factors in the UK that paint the university experience?
1: That's a hard question, Grant. Let me think. Cultural factors. No, well, I guess, you know, the stereotype is that over here is like a stiff British upper lip <laughs> and you just get on with it and you don't, you know, complain about it. and, um, and, and carry on. Exactly. Yeah. yeah and have, have a cup of tea while you're at it. And I mean, I'm Irish living in the UK, so there are going to be some similarities, whereas the Irish similarity will be like, ah, it'll be grand, it'll be grand. Or we'll just moan about it for the sake of moaning <laughs> it, but it'll be grand and we'll have a bit of crack while we're at it. Crackers uh, and fun not the drug guys
0: um, so that's a cultural difference
1: that, that, <laughs> but, thank you for clarifying <laughs> yeah but in the, i guess in the uk i don't i don't think so much the stiff upper lip and don't talk mm-hmm. about it is actually really in place so much anymore as you might think i think actually in the last 10 years so because we've been more open about talking about personal mental health and what mm-hmm. we need for wellness and an employee well-being perspective that has probably become of a less stiff upper lip and more of a kind of softer upper lip.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm, sure, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so in your eyes, how do how do UK institutions, whether they're, you know, or, or um, programs, whether they're public or private, how do you remedy some of the things that that you're seeing as sort of gaps or deficiencies? What are some things that you think they're, that programs are going to have to do in the next few years to really get at those deficiencies and, and move upward?
1: For employees or for ResLife programs?
0: Well, well, for both.
1: Well, I think from a Res Life perspective, that's the, I guess, the easiest answer to give you, first of all. I think when you look at the private student accommodation um, space, a lot of the Res Life programs are all the fun stuff, which is really important, really valuable, and um, something I'm very passionate about. But, you know, it takes an awful lot of work to do this stuff well and to run it in a way that will attract students, keep them engaged, get them talking about in a positive way and telling their friends and then coming back and participating again. And then you want to get them to a point where they participate so much that they become really invested in the community and they want to become RAs and they want to kind of publicly, you know, tell everybody else about it and be an ambassador for you and your organization. And I think, you know, what great looks like, looks different to different operators. Of
0: course, yeah.
1: In that, you know, some might think putting a fruit basket on reception for a healthy breakfast morning is sufficient. Whereas you've got the other end of the spectrum where you have people who will go all out and make it the best breakfast you've ever seen in your entire life. That's my approach, you know, to make it the best you can be. Because if I, as an individual, as a normal person, want to go to an event or activity, I want to have the best experience and I want to get, you know, blown away by it. And so that's how I would always have treated Res Life programs, regardless of how big or small the event is, for um, the operators that I've worked for and for the staff that were on my team when they were training other teams. And so I think we need to get to a space and it's going to take a long time for us to actually set standards in place to understand collectively what good or what great looks like. And also we don't have an awful lot of people who are, I guess, consider themselves to be res life professionals in the UK um, because it's such an evolving space. Most people come into res life by accident, like I did. I actually went to art school and now I work in student housing. Uh, As you can tell, they are extremely connected. (laughs) But most people in res life, you know, come from hospitality and events management and things like that and kind of fall into it. There is no student affairs, undergrad or postgraduate training as you know, in the way that there is in the US and Canada, there's one postgrad student affairs course. And actually, after this year, it is no more. So there actually is no uh, student affairs training in the UK to produce professionals in the way mm-hmm. that can be trained like the US. Also, I, if you look at the pastoral and the disability side of things that are the two other kind of key areas, they're not really I guess, involved or part of res life in the private space and the way they would be in university. And I think, I think it's an opportunity to be honest. And I think it's an opportunity to recruit people into those roles and to really, you know, deliver a res life experience that aligns with the traditional university model that we see in North America and the UK. Equally, not every, as I was saying earlier on, not every university has a fantastic res life program in place. It's evolving. It takes time. It needs to be culturally embedded into the university. And um, a lot of people are trying to understand what is res life. People just think it's like you know a group of people who love unicorns and rainbows and run around and spread joy and glitter. And for a lot of people, it is. And for me, it is sometimes too. But there's an awful lot of work to do for us as professionals to kind of establish who we are, the work we do, the impact it has, and it doesn't help that it's vastly under researched over here as well. So when I jokingly say. I would like to do a PhD. I genuinely would, because I mm-hmm. wouldn't want to contribute to the lack of research in the space. We heavily, heavily rely on research, and academic research from North America and Australia and other mm-hmm. parts of the world. There's snippets here and there in the UK, but not enough mm-hmm. at all.
0: Well, that, that was actually going to be my next nice question. And so that was a trend that I saw when I was reading your dissertation, was that 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 lack of research and formal documentation of the, the profession. And so other than people like yourself who are interested in pursuing that, how do you encourage that research to happen in the UK? What do you think has to happen for that to become more commonplace?
1: It's, I would say in the last two years, there is more conversation about it. And I recently, um, I've recently found someone who's doing her PhD research on purpose built student accommodation in Ireland. Hmm. And I reached out to her via Twitter and was like, oh my God, I need to talk to you. Do you know? You're like a unicorn. You're so rare, like finding people who are doing research. How we encourage it, I guess, is the profession itself, as in student housing itself in uh, the UK, getting better at talking about what they do and mm-hmm. getting better about what they do to other universities, to the government, to other sectors, you know, to kind of like shout a little bit louder about it and talk about the importance of the work that we do. Because I, th- I still think there's a lot of people who believe that. You know, student housing is just, they come collect a key and pay their rent and that's it. And they have very little understanding of the experience that students have in their halls of accommodation and how varied that is for individuals and how varied that is by university to university. Particularly over here, when you just have like collegiate systems in place and you have like some, you know, the Oxbridge model, which is like, you know, centuries old and things Mm -hmm. like that. It's vastly different as it would be in North America too. So we need to get better at like letting people know about what we do and how we do it. I was at a conference last year and it was, um, I think it was Student Accommodation Property Conference. And in that year, in 2019, student housing had had a lot of focus from the government because there was a fire in a really big um, student accommodation provider that made mm-hmm. the news. There was a lot of uh, buildings by numerous operators that were built late. So students turned up you know, on the day of moving with nowhere to move into. And so the government started to look at this. And when the government, had an inquiry about it all actually a lot of them in government didn't realize that this was a sector in of itself and and so that kind of prompted the discussion of well we need to get better about talking about what we do and how we do it and why we do it and then maybe from there it'll prompt people to research uh more into it and actually get the fund that we need to fund people to do phds or to do you know white or green papers sure. and we do we do have snippets of research that comes out so United students who i mentioned earlier generally we'll, we'll produce a piece of work once or twice a year um, and everybody waits for that to come out we do have some uh, researchers who are putting some work out there universities uk um but in terms of the body and breath that we have it, it's not it's nowhere near comparable to what you guys would have and certainly in my own research i was referencing uh north american <laughs> <or> researchers <laughs> left right and center
0: <laughs> yeah it's so well we've been talking about research as well and we, we still rely on theories that are decades and decades old too and residence life and housing research in general i think is is really important mm. um and that's why you know we do our research grant programs because you know a lot of what we have is really helpful but it's also you know either really broad or it was uh, you know, captured in a moment in time or the population that was, you know, measured for those theories was mm. very limited, often male, often white, often straight, often very privileged and, and wealthy. And, you know, there's still... But over- at,
1: at least in your part of the world, you know, everyone knows about Chickering and Tinto yes. and Aften, whereas True. over here, they're like, who? Chickering who? <laughs> uh, you know, a small group of us in different universities will know, but for the most part, yeah. you know, people are working in student affairs type roles and actually will not know about student development theory or have ever heard about it.
0: Thank you for all that wonderful information. Are there other things from your dissertation that were interesting that, that you you know, would really want other people to know or other trends or other pieces of information that sort of set off a light bulb in your head or, or something that's going to inform your practice in the future?
1: Um, I think something that's really important and I've become quite passionate about and probably a little bit vocal about in the last couple of years is that we don't have any competency framework in the UK for uh for staff who Mm. work in student patient roles. So if you're like a residence, um, if you're a residence manager, if you manage student accommodation building, or if you're a deputy residence manager, we have no framework in place. So obviously you've got the I framework and you've got your CAS standards. We don't have that in the UK. Mm. and That says, you know, if you're in your student housing profession, one to three years, this is what you should know. If you're here three to five years, this is what you should know. And this is how you progress to get to the next level. And we definitely need that. If you look at the position advertisements for those kind of positions over here, like I mentioned earlier, it's about managing the buildings, the compliance, the health and safety, the stuff that's not going to get you in trouble with the law, collecting Mm -hmm. the rent, all that kind of stuff. But there is nothing about the holistic side of things. There's nothing about the cultural awareness. There's nothing about the, you know, um, conflict management and the resolution of that kind of stuff. And that's actually probably like, the basic stuff that you would cover in North America that's like part and parcel of those roles that you do it would be part of your induction your training your continuous professional development and that isn't considered over here in the same way and I think for the sector to get better at what it does we need to start having that conversation we need to start coming together and thinking you know these things are really really important actually and we need to start paving a way to, I guess, show that work in student housing is a really interesting, valuable and relevant career move. We don't think of it as a career over here in the same way as you probably do back in your part of the world. And I think that is something where, the, again, it's an opportunity to mm-hmm. showcase the work that we do to kind of de- develop our own kind of brand sure. almost. Um, and that, that's a, it's a massive gap and it's a massive opportunity. It's going to take some time to get there. But I think that yeah. conversation is starting to happen now.
0: For you personally, what has been the most rewarding aspect of your career in housing that that you can think of? And and yes, I'm going to make you pick one thing that (laughs) that,
1: that
0: has been the most valuable, the most, whatever has warmed your heart, made you happy, you know, all those sorts of things.
1: I think, um, gosh, Grant, put me on the spot, but a great question. I think it's the opportunity that working in the sector has given me the amount of opportunities to meet people from all over the world, because, you know, there are universities in every country and there's student housing pretty much in every country. And so by default, you have the opportunity to meet people. And I feel that people who work in student housing are a really friendly bunch, particularly in res life. We're super friendly. We don't bite, as I always say. And people are always so open to sharing ideas and best practice and are genuinely interested in what you do in your job, in your part of the world and vice versa. So the opportunities to meet new people, to build friendships, to build professional working relationships, to go to conferences, like you saw me at a Kuai last year, it was like a dream come true. I was so excited. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so,
1: you know, even if it's conferences in the UK or further afield, I think uh, the opportunity that I've gotten, I've been extremely privileged and extremely grateful um, for all of those opportunities that have come my way over the last 12 short years in student accommodation so far.
0: Wonderful. I love hearing that. Thank you. And so if you to think about the field in general, and so even larger than you know, your experience in the UK, if you have to think about. You know, the single biggest challenge that you, campus housing as a, as a profession, as a whole, has to contend with. What do you think is the most critical issue?
1: Well, getting over COVID, it's going to be the obvious one, isn't it? And getting our student numbers back to the levels they were before, that that's a big concern in the UK, particularly the international mm-hmm. market. And we do have students arriving over the Christmas period into the University of Leeds and we would have started in September. Um, it is less than what we would have had before, but we're quite a lucky university in that we're a big, a big university. So we can probably weather the storm a little bit easier than some universities can, unfortunately so that's going to be the immediate priority. Uh, In terms of personal interest, I think training and development is crucial. I think we need to attract more people into the sector, we need to make it a viable career option. I would love to see universities in the UK having conversations about developing undergraduate, not just postgraduate, undergraduate programs around student affairs because it is a really great career option and actually it's increasingly become more and more important because we are talking about transition to, through and out of university now. And we are, we are talking about how we support a range of groups like care experience mm-hmm. and students from widening participation backgrounds and whatnot. And actually, I think a light, I think actually what COVID's done is actually shone a light on professional student fair services and departments in UK universities about the amount of work that they've done, particularly in accommodation because so many students couldn't go home and had to stay. And, you know, lots of staff went home during the pandemic, but actually the vast majority of student accommodation staff were identified as key workers and stayed on campus and mm-hmm. went to work every day. So right. if anything, you know, I'd like that momentum to continue of how valuable that work is. And actually we, we can do more to um, train people and attract more into the sector and get them get them addicted to into student accommodation like I am. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, What is your greatest hope for the future of the profession?
1: We get more research. We -hmm. we really do need more research and a wide range of research. So the experience of students living in university accommodation, and this will sound like really basic research topics, but we don't have that knowledge. We don't have that independent research. So the experience of students in um, university-owned accommodation, in private accommodation, the experience of staff benchmarking that research against each other, the experience of different cohorts of students uh, regardless of you know what minority or faith or background they're from um yeah just like research is so important and just then i guess breaking that down to the size of institution or the size of operator and like there's this huge amount of poss- i could probably write you know I, I think another thesis on the amount of things that we could do research in um and, and getting the funding for that is it, crucial and um i think the amount of value that could bring to the sector would be phenomenal.
0: Thank you for your insight. Uh, it's it's always a lot of fun talking to you. Uh, we look forward to the work you're going to be doing uh, in this coming year as our new Global Initiatives Network chair. Uh, so we have
1: <laughs>
0: lots of stuff to do um, in 2021, and so we're, you know we're really looking forward to working with you. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of the Akuhoi Stories podcast. I'd like to thank Rebecca O'Hare for sharing her research with us and for her continued work as a valued member of the association. You can follow Rebecca on Twitter at Rebecca underscore ResLife. That's R-E-S-L-I-F-E. And you can find the Free Food, Free Drinks podcast there as well at Free Food Pod. Past and future episodes of this podcast can be found on our website, www.acuho-i.org podcast. Our main site also has a wide range of helpful resources, events, and initiatives for campus housing professionals at all levels. You can also follow Akuhoai on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. I'm Grant Walters, and it's been a pleasure being your host. Until next time, I hope you and yours stay safe and healthy.